0: Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org.
1: Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be learning how to think like a Hindu with our guest, Swami Sarvapriyananda. Please visit YRadioShow.org for our archives, show notes, and to support the program. Click Donate on the upper right-hand corner to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota's secure website. We exist solely on listener contributions. Many of you may be familiar with the concept of Orientalism. It's a term coined by literature professor Saeed to describe the way that Western countries falsely treat much of the non-Western world as caricatures and is fundamentally different from themselves. The idea is that not only are people from Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East somehow less than Westerners, but their cultural practices and religions promote subservience and are less sophisticated. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. What Saeed was criticizing was Orientalism, and he was talking about colonialism and domination, a kind of cultural contempt. I, however, would like to focus on the idea of foreignness, that beliefs and traditions from these places are assumed to be for other people and not for us. This was illustrated most recently when Russia invaded Ukraine and the American news media kept commenting on how we should be more connected to this war than those in the Middle East because Ukrainians looked familiar and could be our neighbors. They are, one commented, blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and they all live in a region where we don't expect conflict. This not-subtle message is that all folks in the large circle of nations that surround Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria are meant to be bombed, and their people are not worth distinguishing as individuals. This othering contaminates descriptions of Hinduism specifically, the third largest religion in the world. Despite its being 5,000 years old, regardless of the fact that it has 1.2 billion adherents, it is often depicted as fringe and exotic. Western Hindus are frequently dismissed as weirdos or New Agers. You can think the hippies and the Beatles for that. And Hinduism is commonly belittled as a two-dimensional performance people mimic when they want to find spirituality rather than religion. My own philosophical education certainly suggested this. Almost every department of philosophy in the English-speaking world emphasizes what we call Western philosophy, the tradition of European thought inherited from the ancient Greeks. And each, without fail, has a course called Eastern philosophy or, now to be more inclusive, Asian philosophy, which attempts to encapsulate a quarter of the world in one semester. The contention that I have heard over and over again is that Eastern philosophy is different. Its notion of logic is much more ambiguous. Its texts are to be read more mystically and that I and philosophers like me with all of our years of training are simply not qualified to talk about it in class. You're either an Eastern or Western philosopher and there's no getting around that. Now, I have strong words to describe this fiction, but I'll leave them to your imagination. Not only is it not true, it's never been true. The East and the West, if those terms even make sense, have always been intertwined through trade, competition, and conflict. The earliest statues of the Buddha, for example, were created to counter the spread of the cult of Apollo in the region we now call Pakistan and Afghanistan. And everyone, everywhere, even the peoples beyond the Indus River who were the earliest Hindus, are concerned with good and evil, justice, knowledge of the divine, our relationship with others, and self-awareness. These are human questions, and I'm sorry if this sounds pedantic, but Hindus are humans too. Universalists like to claim that there is one great truth and that each religion is simply a specific culture's attempt to describe what that truth is. Krishna said something similar. I have to admit, I find this insight compelling, and if it's accurate, it means that Hinduism gets us where we want to go as well as any other belief system. They each provide their own piece of the puzzle. Hinduism is worth attending to. It's a rich, complex tradition whose influence permeates non-Hindu lives through yoga and meditation, for example, or vegetarianism, or the nonviolence of Martin Luther King Jr., or the widespread belief in reincarnation. There's much to learn about the religion, and on today's episode, we'll be doing just that. But we're going to do more than look at how Hinduism's conclusions differ from the Abrahamic traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The title of today's episode is How to Think Like a Hindu because my contention is that each of us, given some time, reflection and imagination, can get a glimpse of the thought processes that help everyday Hindus find meaning and divinity in their lives. Today's guest is a monk, a swami. He's devoted his life to both the study and practice of Hinduism. And he's also worked tirelessly as a representative of his religion, as an emissary for the curious. This makes him different than most of our other guests because for him, ideas don't mean anything if they can't be actively pursued. That's a major difference between philosophy and religion. Philosophical ideas can always remain purely theoretical, but religion must be inherently practical. Its evidence is in the lived experience of every person who aims to fulfill its ideas. So today, as we all try to think like Hindus together, try to imagine not just whether the ideas are right or wrong, but whether your life would be better if you lived as they suggested. Ask yourself, does the new knowledge the Swami offers us make a difference in how you see the world? If it does, then you are one step closer to countering the pernicious Orientalism that divides East and West, and to the recognition that truth is never exotic, it's just unfamiliar. And now our guest, Swami Ananda is the minister and spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York and was a Nagral fellow at the Harvard Divinity School. He served as an assistant minister in the Vedanta Society of Southern California's Hollywood Temple and as teacher, Arkaya, Arkaya, Acharya. Acharya, thank Acharya. you very much,
2: Acharya.
1: Acharya, of the Monastic Prohibitioner's uh, Training Center at Bellar Math India. Swami, welcome to Y. Thank <laughs> you, Jack, and thank you for having me. I am, I am glad that you are based in New York because you're going to, put up with my New York accent and my, and my horrible butchering of all of the Sanskrit words in your name, and I apologize for that. But um, it's – I
2: don't know what else to do about it. <laughs> um, that's perfectly all right. And you would be surprised at the number of uh, Indians who make a mess of the name. They're difficult names. <laughs> so –
1: Folks at home, if you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is always at Radio Show. You can always email us at at askyund.edu, listen to our previous episodes for free, learn more, and donate at YRadioShow.org. Okay, so Swami, this may be an odd question to start with, but I've actually been thinking about it a lot. Every guest I've had so far, I've called by their first name. This is true whether they've been a friend, a best-selling author, a Nobel laureate. Yet, from the very beginning, I knew I was going to call you Swami. It never occurred to me to refer to you as anything else. Now, you're not my therapist, (laughs) right? But do you know why this
2: is? Do you have a sense of what I'm reacting to there? Well, actually, it's not uh, difficult. You know, there's a very visual impact of this person dressed in bright orange. Um, Just yesterday, um, uh, when I turned up at my hosts uh, here in Fargo, they have a very bright six-year-old. The first thing he said when he saw me was, hello, orange uncle. (laughs) (laughs) And I would suggest that people are reacting in the same way as the six-year-old. Here is this person who represents something. And that's what we are addressing. You know, when when I say Swami, uh, this bright orange-robed person is a Swami. I mean, what else could he be? Uh, In India, uh, you know, We bow down to somebody who looks like a monk, not because we know him or we even know this particular religious affiliation, but we know that he stands for an ideal. A lot like, you know, when you see a person in uniform at the airport, you might go up and say, thank you for your service, without knowing exactly who he is or 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 what she does. Uh, But it's just the impersonal ideal of it, I think. That's what people are responding to.
1: My father, who is – we'll call him an imperfect Jew, (laughs) will wear his yarmulke, his kippah most of the time. But when he's in a restaurant that isn't kosher, he'll take it off because he doesn't want anyone outside to think that it's a place that's kosher and that's leading him astray. Do you feel that same kind of pressure when you're out and about, when you're representing your order that – Everything you do is an advertisement for not only what you represent, but what people can use you as a guidepost for, for lack of a better way of asking the
2: question. I guess that's true, though I wouldn't keep it forefront in my awareness. That would be too much pressure to take. <laughs> so um, I'm pretty comfortable in my skin and in the orange, too. Though so you are right. Um you know, there was a time when the swamis who've been here for more than 100 years now, uh, the center I am in was is probably the first uh, Hindu ashram in the West. Uh, it was established in 1894 by Swami Vivekan and the, the monk who, Hindu monk who came here with Hinduism first. Um, some of the early swamis in you know pre-war uh, United States, you would see them dressed in Western clothes, uh, but that was more because uh, it was too strange, this, this mm-hmm. dress, and it sort of interfered with what they were trying to say to uh, their almost entirely American audience at that time. Things have changed since then. Uh, I find, for example, New York is so very multicultural. Nobody looks back twice at mm-hmm. <laughs> at me when I'm dressed like this. So I guess, yeah, that's what I would say.
1: Do they, do they treat you differently at the um, security at the airport?
2: Do they give
1: you deference or do they scrutinize you more
2: uh, both yeah. sometimes uh, uh, especially in india you, you would get a lot of difference uh, sometimes not in india you would be picked out of a line just because you are <laughs> dressed like this but it's all right that's all right
1: when when you became a swami you changed your name yes is that is that is the new name a title and a swami an office or is this more akin to even what the the born-again Christians are trying to suggest, that metaphysically, existentially, you have become a different person and that when you've reached this stage of being Swami, your identity is fundamentally
2: changed? I think both. Mm -hmm. The latter more than the first. But the first two, first of all, the word Swami, uh, just literally from Sanskrit, it translates into master, teacher, um, monk, uh, so, a Swami normally a monk would be called Swami so and so. The Swami is actually more like, uh, you know, like a Reverend, for example. And uh, my name would be Sarva Priyananda, The whole name would be Swami Sarva Priyananda Puri, and uh, that clearly marks me out as a monk. And to those who know more details, it would tell them which order I belong to, which kind of, which brand or flavor of Hinduism I follow, what my uh, philosophical leanings would be. But more than that, what you su- suggested, uh, the second option was, yes, when you become a monk in Hinduism, uh, you are actually supposed, it's like being reborn. Um, you de- when, when a Hindu dies, there are certain ceremonies performed, um, which mark like f- funeral ceremonies. And when you become a monk, you actually perform those ceremonies for yourself. That's the only case where mm-hmm. you would perform. It's as if you are dead uh, to the world. And then now you have a new life. You begin with this new name and uh, entirely new position in society, uh, so, which is also one of the reasons why you can't actually go back because the other person is supposed to be dead.
1: I want to figure out how to ask this question. I'm, I'm asking it a little above my pay grade, so I may get this wrong and, and, and you may have to explain some things. But my understanding is that a person's karma in previous lives creates the body of their next, I guess, generation. You are changing your identity, but presumably you're not changing your body. So is there a theological sense of how this shift into monkhood affects your karma? And would you say – I'm going to use Aristotle's terms here. Would you say that, that your essence is different even though your physical matter is the same?
2: Uh, The answer to that would be actually no. But if I could just skip back to your earlier question about death and being reborn into a new life, Indian law actually recognizes this, you know, uh, taking sannyas, that means the vows of uh, monasticism in Hinduism, is actually regarded as uh, being equivalent to legal death. Hmm. So if you become a monk, you, um, as far as I know, you give up all claim to your paternal property. You can't now litigate and you know tell your siblings from an earlier life that you give me my share of stuff. You can't do that. Uh, now, is there a change in essence? Is there a change in karma? No. Uh, You—it It is well recognized that becoming a monk and all the ceremonies we go through and all these vows that we take up uh, and uh, the new life, all of these are seen as aids to eventual enlightenment. And until enlightenment, you are still under the thrall of um, causality. Past actions still rule over us. Uh, so literally, it's not that all your actions are done away with, uh, your karma has no hold upon you. It, it will have no hold upon you once you're enlightened. Um, so, and being a monk is, a, is an aid, a very powerful aid, but still, it's just part of the journey.
1: I want to – I've been trying to think about how to start the conversation without what so many people do, which is could you define this? Could you define that? Listeners, they can't hold that and it's boring. And and, and one of the things that I found most intriguing in one of your interviews was you talked about – there being two basic kinds of religions, a God-centered religion and a self-centered religion. And I think that that is probably a really useful way for our listeners to start thinking about what Hinduism brings to the table. Would you talk a little bit about this distinction and and also how it informs your order and your point
2: of view? Right. Thank you for bringing that up, Jack. I think that's a very important distinction, especially here in the West. Um, The kind of religion that people are used to, and in fact... um, that's all most people understand by religion is, is God, faith in God, and an eventual freedom from, um, you know, worldliness, some kind of salvation. And it's all very faith-based. In fact, uh, that's the name for religion in America. they will use religion and faith interchangeably. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, I mean, in India, we know of uh, an enormous variety of religious perspectives, and some of which are not predominantly faith-based. For example, Buddhism. Um, it's difficult to say that it's just a faith, or it's an entirely faith-based enterprise. Uh, that's why I think a lot of Westerners find Buddhism intriguing. You know, They find, how is it a r- religion? It seems to be more a, a system of ethics and meditation. Um, so yes, if you look at the structure of human experience, We are experiencers, uh, subjects, and we experience an objective world. So there is a subject and object. And it would make sense that if our spiritual pursuit could have these two dimensions, an objective dimension when you want to know what's the reality behind this universe. Let's call that God. And this God, you have faith in God. uh, Your teachers tell you so. Your tradition tells you so, so. The holy books tell you so. And then you develop devotion, uh, surrender, love, uh, and uh, cultivate the ethics uh, that are prescribed in your religion. So that would be the God-centered religion. In contrast, I won't call it a self-centered religion, that sounds pretty bad. So a self inquiry based religion, that would be a better term for that. And there are many of those. Uh, Buddhism is a, is a classic example. But in Hinduism too, uh, Hinduism... Uh, you have a, a philosophy called Sankhya, uh, which is self-inquiry based. You have Yoga, the the philosophy called Yoga. Yoga is a wide term covering a lot, but there's a particular school called Yoga, which uh, is centered on meditation. But that's also a self-inquiry approach. There is another religion which is well known in India, not so much outside, called Jainism, and they don't they don't talk about God. Uh, they are agnostic about the existence of God. So those are self-inquiry-based religions, where the whole question is not God, but who am I, what am I, and if I inquire into myself, I am expected to find the answers which will lead me to eventual enlightenment and freedom. So This, I would say, is the fundamental difference between these two kinds of religions.
1: You've sort of anticipated a question that I had in mind, but I'll ask it anyway, there are some who will hear the self-inquiry, the self-focus aspect of religion as, as somehow narcissistic. But for, as you describe it, it's more of an entry into a method, right? Can you talk why isn't it narcissistic and, and, and how is it the beginning of inquiry?
2: Right. Um, both of these approaches, the God-centered approach and the self-inquiry approach, have their individual, uh, have their unique Advantages and uh, disadvantages too, it's interesting to see how each sees the other so um, I remember this uh, interfaith program organized by the Sikhs in India, which I attended and Sikhism is is a completely god centered uh, approach, and so there were um, Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims. Uh, Christians, and a rabbi from New York, all the way from New York in in India. <laughs> we're, ev- we're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, they're talking about God, God this and God that, and we are all children of God. And all the time I was noticing there was this group of uh, smiling uh, Buddhist lamas who, who had, whom the Dalai Lama had sent. They're sitting peaceably in one corner of the hall and smiling gently. From their perspective, it's all superstition. What are you talking about? What God? Where is this God you're talking about? So um, the the peculiar strength of the self inquiry based religion is I exist. Nobody denies their own existence. And that's what Descartes ended up with. You know, mm. that, that you cannot deny your own existence. You can doubt everything else, but you can't doubt the doubter. Even to doubt that, you have to be the doubter. So this the uh, self exists. What the nature of the self is That depends upon your particular philosophical angle, your particular religious bent and uh, choice. Uh, Whereas the problem with the God-centered approach always has been doubt. Does God, I mean it's extraordinary, if God exists, uh, God is the most extraordinary thing ever. But does God exist at all? And you will find this, there have always been skeptics who have doubted the existence of God. And there have been believers who have always been plagued by doubt. And notice one characteristic of all the God-centered religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and varieties within Hinduism, which are God-centered, they always have this effort to prove the existence of God, whether it is uh, St. Augustine, uh, Aquinas, the five mm-hmm. proofs of the existence right. of God, the great Indian logician, uh, Udayan Acharya, who offers nine proofs of the existence of God. And, I mean, the the Hindus and the Buddhists had nearly a 900-year debate on the existence of god and soul uh, but more of that later <laughs> uh, so the weakness of the god centered approach is the, whether does god exist at all and there the self inquiry based approach has a, a, an advantage there that's why i would say that buddhism is so attractive to a lot of westerners today because it doesn't make demands on faith uh, which is quite difficult in this day and age when you're confronted by say, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or somebody, Buddhism is peculiarly, peculiarly impervious to such assaults.
1: I, I have so much to ask. Uh, we have to take a break. When we get back, I'm going to jump right in, and, and I'm going to ask a question that I think some people would be concerned about, especially with Westerners becoming uh, interested in, in, in Buddhism particularly, but also Hinduism and the practice of yoga, and that is whether or not the question of cultural appropriation comes into play. But first, you are listening to Swami Savra Priyananda and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this.
0: The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life. Because there is no ivory tower.
1: We're back with Why Philosophical Discussions about Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Swami Sarvapriyananda about Hinduism, how to think like a Hindu. And when we left, I brought up the the, the question of cultural appropriation because I know especially for younger generations now, what it means to be authentic and what it means to hold on to a tradition is very, very important. There are great debates now about… Can white people wear uh, cornrows in their hair? Uh, Can people who aren't Native American wear Native American traditional garb? What's the difference between honoring and and caricaturing? And so I'm wondering as you look at the American interest, the Western interest in these Hindu practices, when is it okay and when is it not to – Not just take an
2: interest, but I don't know, to participate for lack of a better term? Well, Let me tell you a little anecdote that comes to mind when you ask this question. That was in Los Angeles over five years ago. I was asked to talk about Hinduism to a group of American school kids. And when I mentioned yoga. One little boy said, Oh, you have yoga in India too? (laughs) So, uh, So that brings up an interesting issue. Look, It's wonderful when the ideas in our tradition are uh, people are interested in them and they incorporate it into their practice. Uh, That's wonderful. That's why we are here. Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody asked once, so are you here to convert people to uh, your way of thinking or your religion? Not really. Uh, I haven't converted a single person yet. And in my whole tradition, I don't I can't think of too many people who have actually become. <laughs> well, Hindus. we have a lot of <laughs> listeners, so you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, so you, uh, and that's not the point. Uh, when Swami Vivekananda was asked, what are you here for? He said, do I want that a Christian should become a Hindu? He says, God forbid, do I want a Hindu should become a Muslim? God forbid what I'm what I want is a Christian to be a better Christian, a Hindu to be a better Hindu, a Buddhist to be a better Buddhist and so on. Um. The idea is that we have something valuable to share, and at that I think that makes our common spiritual life much richer. Uh, it's, it's, I think, in some ways, it's easier for a Hindu because Hinduism is so internally so diverse, incredibly diverse. Uh, I often say, any question that you ask a Hindu, the answer would be yes and no. <laughs>
1: All of the things you're saying, including the way you phrased, God forbid, just makes it sound so New York Jewish. <laughs> and, and and maybe that's the product of living in Manhattan. But there is something to be said about – when I hear you talking to other folks, There's there's constantly this refrain of people aren't wrong. They're just on a journey. People aren't making a mistake. You can read it this way. You can say it this way. You can do it this way because this is where you are right now. Is that – a heuristic Is that talking down to people who just don't get it? Or is, it, is there really this sense that all of these different answers are contingent on who you are, where you are, not just in the cycle of reincarnation, but where you are in, in, in your physical lives and, and, and in the world?
2: That's very important. Um, you know, the way the Hindu looks at religion is as a path. The moment you do that, uh, then you can ha- you can immediately you ad- you see that there can be different paths, and the different paths can lead you to the goal. We do, however, insist that there is ultimately there is a goal, and it's uh, we would also like to insist that it is the same goal. The goal being infinite, you can see it as different goals. You can describe it in different ways. You can describe it at the theist- theological god, the theistic god of say Judaism or Christianity or as the impersonal absolute of, of Vedanta, uh, or as uh, the the nirvana of the Buddhist. It's, it's infinite, and therefore all of these are uh, appropriate and right, also valid. And the different religions are different paths which take you to that infinite reality and which is the goal of uh, all religion. Uh, a lot of what I'm saying is similar to the perennial philosophy, Aldous Huxley, uh, that there is a common like a highest common denominator of all religions and these are different pathways which will help you there. Um, going back to the question of appropriation. So so first of all, appropriation is not a huge problem because from my perspective, I mean, a modern term for that would be cosmopolitanism. <laughs> Thank yes. you for saying that. That's excellent. I like that. Right. For folks listening, cosmopolitanism
1: is a word that is often used to suggest that there is one world and that we're all citizens of the one world and that to be a true one world citizen is to take different ideas and different practices from different traditions and and, and look at all of these as one unified thing rather than by focusing on false national identities, divisive ethnicities, and those sorts of things. So so I really love that cosmopolitanism as the opposite of,
2: or the negation of appropriation. Please, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, continue that No, one. that's yeah. very well yeah. put. Yeah. And you see that in a place like New York, for example. I used to think India was like the most diverse place I've ever been, but you come to New York, it's more diverse than India. You have eight people from 80 or more different nations, and language, and, and you are part of it. Uh, you know often the problem with pluralism is that uh, yes, there are these different truths, but you can still be within your own ivory tower and excluded from the others and still continue to in- insist on some kind of doctrinal purity, which actually, if you look closely at it in a fine-grained look at any church, uh, any religious congregation, there isn't that mu- that much uniformity as one as the purist would want actually. Um, so the idea that the d- different religions can all lead you to the truth. And you need to hold on to one, but that does not mean you are shut out to all the others uh, you, you know influence from other religions can enrich you this um, i I have this very interesting uh, revealing experience which shows the difference in the way of thinking um, professor clooney in at harvard uh, in the Harvard Divinity School he wrote this very n- nice text, reading Hindu and Christian classics together, and the book launch, which was done online you would have two scholarly interlocutors who come in and comment on it one of them a noted scholar of religion said well what's the point of this exercise you know ultimately the whole point is to decide which is right and uh, you know discard the ones which are wrong and that's so s- shocking for a hindu <laughs> you'd never in a million years think about it that way every time i read say a christian text a devotional text the whole idea is to see it from through christian eyes and enrich my own devotional practice, my spiritual practice. That's the way a Hindu would look at it. And I suggest that's pretty close to a cosmopolitan idea of spirituality. So I'm going to ask a
1: silly question, and then I'm going to (laughs) morph it into a serious question. We had a a video uh, when our daughter was younger of yoga for kids, that Taught the different positions as letters in the alphabet. It was very very cute. And there's also a book. And people talk about when when dogs stretch and and you know do downward facing dog. They call it doga, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the silly question is, is that somehow inappropriate, or is that making light of something that shouldn't be made light of? But the more serious question is. You know, when I – I am not a very bendy person, <laughs> but I really find yoga really tremendously useful for me. And, and where I live, one of my great frustrations is that a lot of the yoga is at the fitness center and there's no sense of spirituality and there's no it's, – it's yoga as a workout. On the one hand, right, people do what they need to do where they are. On the other hand, it feels such a bastardization of the practice – how do you feel about this idea that um, that asana, that, that, that pose practices, even in uh, sort of just for, for the physical needs and for workouts, can lead someone to the, the, the deeper, more
2: spiritual, more meaningful yoga practice? You're right. Uh, there are schools which preserve the spiritual core of yoga, I have seen yoga schools like that. They teach all the physical yoga, but they have meditation, they have uh, philosophy, they have courses in Sanskrit, things like that uh, added onto that. And I've seen, and I've seen a lot of yoga teachers, in the sense of the physical yoga teachers in the West, who become interested in the philosophy behind it. But you're right; a lot of it has just become like a physical exercise, which is good in itself. It's, there's nothing wrong in it. It's perfectly fine. But I would always want that link to the deeper philosophies behind it to be preserved. uh, So that, uh, and sometimes you're right, it can feel like it's become superficial or, you know, stretched, forgive the pun, stretched (laughs) too far. (laughs) So uh, bent completely out of shape, if you will. Um, I I have seen, I I have had reactions from Indian yoga teachers who have objected strenuously to say goat yoga or something like that. And my response to them has been, I, I see what you are trying to say, but on the other hand, look at it this way. We had it all this time. What did we do with it in India? Almost nothing. Nobody hmm. was really particularly interested. It's the uh, Western, especially the Americans who became very interested in it and they took it up. They Americanized it. That's, that's all right. But now it's, it's the possession of the whole world. It's not just the possession of a few yogis in India. And I'm so glad about that. Uh, now there's an international day of yoga, for example. So it's taken a life of its own. Um, and it's good that there is this little pushback and a demand for authenticity, which will uh, tend to preserve the core of yoga. One reason why it's been like this is also partly due to the Indian teachers themselves. When they came here, famously I heard a, s- a saying ascribed to Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, who who emphasized the meditation aspect. Somebody a- when he went back to India after his first few classes here in the West, somebody in India, one of his brother monks, said, what's this that you are teaching them, that meditation is good for you know, your physical immunity, it makes you look younger, it, your wrinkles won't be there in your face. That's not the point of meditation. The point of meditation is enlightenment. That's what all the texts tell us. Why are you saying these things? Not that they are wrong, but that's not the point. And it seems that Mahesh Yogi r- responded. He said, I give them, meaning the Americans, I give them what they want in the hope that one day they will want what I want to give them. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: And that really, that preserves that sense of the path of moving forward. And, and so if you only end up continually doing just the fitness center yoga, then maybe you've missed out on something really important. And And that leads to the next question, which I think one of the things that will help us all understand... Uh, how to think like a Hindu and and, and the the Hindu tradition is the debates within Hinduism, what makes one school different than the other. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about dualism and and, and non-dualism and how Hinduism struggles with this debate and why this is connected to this notion of a path and this notion of enlightenment.
2: Right. To understand that, we have to go back to the very roots of Hinduism In the Vedic times, maybe four or five thousand years ago, we don't know exactly when, they came across this most valuable insight in the Rig Veda, which is the most ancient of the Hindu, the fundamental texts of Hinduism. Uh, The Sanskrit is Ekam Sat Vipra Bahudavaanti, literally translates into the truth is one, the wise speak of it differently. This was so valuable and it it sort of informed the development of hinduism and india over the next 4 or 5000 years what it did was it allowed an enormous variety of opinions to flourish and develop um, regarding religion and philosophy in india without fear of persecution uh, without fear of being saying that this is right and everybody else is a heretic the idea of heresy simply wasn't there in india if the truth is one and infinite. You can express it in different ways, in different uh, philosophies, different logic, different language, and that's perfectly fine. So you would have um, a variety of schools, a variety of thinkers, and each would find a follower, and that's true even down till today. Uh, even in the this, this smallest Indian village, uh, people who have no idea of Sanskrit or Ekam, Sad, Vipra, Bahudava, but they have imbibed it into their culture. So... Um, I go and worship Shiva in my little temple in the village, and my neighbor goes and worships Vishnu. It's perfectly all, all right, and I know that is another way of ex- expressing the same truth which I am to.
1: I want to interrupt. I I want to get to the dualism question, but I do. I hear the voices in my head that uh, of the audience members who are saying, this is this is beautiful and this is theoretical, but we are talking about. India versus Pakistan. <laughs> we are talking about Kashmir. Uh, we are talking about tremendous conflict. And so how does one preserve the universalist, super-tolerant, super-inclusive notion of Hinduism in the face of real-world conflict and, and the history of violence that is certainly not exclusive to, the, the, to South Asia?
2: Right, uh, and it's an important but a difficult question. Um, let's divide it into two parts. When there was enormous diversity within India, uh, let's think about Hinduism and Buddhism. The gap between Hinduism and Buddhism in some sense is much greater than the gap between, say, Hinduism and Islam and Christianity, for example. Uh, here you have people, uh, Buddhists, who don't believe in God. They don't believe in an immortal soul. And then, But what happened was, because of this understanding that spiritual masters may speak in wildly different language, yet it could still be true what they're talking about because the truth they're talking about is beyond language. Um, The one response was the development of, as you mentioned earlier, debates. So there was this entire range of scholarship. There were scholars on both sides and they, they were lucky to have a common scholarly language, Sanskrit, and commonly agreed upon rules of debate. So all these fights... They were played out at a very sophisticated uh, intellectual, like intellectual gladiatorial combats were literally like combats. There would be two scholars facing off against each other supporters of each side and uh, there would be judges and there would be a lay audience all enjoying these debates. And these debates would have real world consequences. A particular sect might become more important and other sect might lose its followership if you lost an intellectual debate. But what it did was, on one hand, it led to a flourishing of philosophy. A lot of uh, sophistication uh, came to philosophical systems because of continuous challenges and uh, refutations, counter-refutations. It preserved the peace, so differences were um, okay, and you could you confront the dis- differences, but you would confront it. You would have a certain minimum cutoff of intellectual c- capacity. It would have to be confronted at an intellectual level. What happened was when you had entirely different forces come into the Indian subcontinent, um, first the waves of uh, Islam. By the way, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam came to India at, at almost at their very beginning. Judaism came first to India at, at around 70 AD with the destruction of the second temple by the uh, Romans. And uh, the Jews have always been a tiny community, but Always well regarded and always, you know, treated very peacefully. I I remember meeting this uh, uh, Israeli consul general in in New York. He said, I meet the Jewish diaspora from all over the world and they have tales of woe to tell us except one country. And that's Hmm. India. Uh, They've never had a problem uh, in India. So this diversity was there. Uh, Christians have been there since the time of Jesus, apparently uh, St. Thomas, the, the doubting Thomas, right. he came to India. That's the story, at least. So it's been there for a long time. But with the uh, waves of uh, the Islamic invasions coming uh, from the northern border, you now have an ideology which is not interested, which is not part of the common culture of you know Sanskrit and debate, which is not interested in Sanskrit and debate. It's interested in saying that I am right and you are wrong, and you're going to either join me or die. Uh, so that was, uh, uh, I think, it was a huge shock to the, uh, the thought culture of the Indian system. And let me not um, be, you know, make it sound simple, because it wasn't simple. There were enormous uh, problems within uh, traditional Indian society, an uh, uh, incredible hierarchy with those at the bottom of the hierarchy with the life being crushed out of them by, by the, the, the by the caste system. system. Yeah. Yes. So it's not that it was always the sword or some kind of uh, pressure converting people from Hinduism to Islam. No, it was often a a release from an oppressive system. So there were large numbers of people, I'm sure, they converted out of their uh, free will and they were attracted uh, to this new ideology. Um, So what happened over time was a synthetic culture came up in India, which integrated elements of uh, Islam into uh, Hinduism giving rise. Hinduism has always been a matrix, giving rise to different religions. Uh, Buddhism and Jainism came out of Hinduism. So did Sikhism. And the one reason was the shock of the encounter with Islam. Hmm. Sikhism seems to have uh, elements of both Hinduism and Islam in it. So this is how Hinduism has responded as a religion to um, the influx of uh, uh, other religions in- into India. My own order, which is the 19th century, you might call it the 19th century, reform Hinduism, Uh, was uh, responding not only to Islam but also Christianity and also the West uh, with science and rationality and all of that coming in. And this is not considered inauthentic. In Hinduism, it's always been organic. It takes on new forms over the centuries. And that's perfectly fine in Hinduism.
1: One more question along this line, and then I'll move back to the the dualism question. It has always been my personal feeling, my, my contention, that... Any time you end up having a partition, you fail. That partition is not a goal. India, Pakistan, uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland, Israel and, and, and Palestine, that, that partitioning is a failure and that integration is the only long-term solution for, for getting along. Do you think that that's too naive? Do you think that that's inappropriate for in your experience with, the, with, with India particular,
2: particularly? I think you're right. In principle, um, in principle, in right. principle, in p- principle, partition is a failure. Yeah, it's the inability of large groups of people uh, to get along together, which everybody, any cool, head, reasonable person on both sides would recognize yeah. that would have been a better alternative. Which is why Mahatma Gandhi was devastated when India became independent and became independent India and independent Pakistan. He took it as a day of mourning yeah. because. Uh, his dreams had fallen apart. They were now these two nations where they should have been one. And the only dividing principle was um, uh, religion. Just people who are just like each other. Now they uh, become refugees in their uh, own country. They go to a different country and set up a, you know, generational, intergenerational hatred for uh, for each other. One, um, at risk of being unpopular, but I must say that there is In Hinduism, from the Hindu perspective, there is no theological, philosophical reason to hate people belonging to a different um, religion. Um, Whereas in other religions, it might be that we are right and you are wrong, and therefore we have to either convert you or destroy you or something, and that leads to a a theology-prompted, you know, like activism against some other religion, which might be uh, religious conversion, it might be actually warfare, Uh, It might be riots. So the violence from um, Hindus sometimes, it's more based on, I would say, resentment against past uh, real or imaginary, um, you know, uh, atrocities against uh, our community, the destruction of temples, mass conversions, enslavement, things like that, loss of political uh, freedom. Colonialism. Colonialism. Uh, Resentment against past aggression and also the perceived continuing present aggression but it's not i often say uh, religious violence from hindu side is not an authentic in the sense and i'm i'm being slightly sarcastic here it's not <laughs> authentic because uh, it's not based on uh, any kind of uh, philosophical or you know like no scriptural basis for it no philosophical basis for it it's just hitting back at uh, um, when, when uh, some of my Hindu friends in the new Hindu right, which is there, which is quite aggressive, and uh, so they say that all this harmony talk that uh, we hear from you, you don't hear that from other religions. Uh, I say that's fine, but you're a Hindu, right? And you say yes. So, as a Hindu, how would you respond uh, to other religions? Because as a Hindu, you must admit that uh, you don't have this doctrine of other religions being false religions. There's nothing like that in Hinduism. So all the major religions you must respect and you must see that they all are, t- are talking about in some way of the same infinite truth which your own traditions are talking about. With enormous internal diversity, it's very easy for the Hindu to say that, that other, what the Muslim is doing and what the Christian is doing also must be true. So there's no answer to that from people who are trying to be aggressive within Hinduism. Every religion that, that, that I've ever Gotten involved in there has always been
1: a core group of people who have argued their uh, scripture is tolerant that violence is inauthentic and I'm not suggesting that that's not true of Hinduism I'm suggesting that that it it proves your point right that there is this tremendous overlap and that and that and that that this this debate this in, uh, interaction this integration that all of the religions would be better off if they if if they held that position. I wonder – let's go back. So the original question, you know, 14 hours ago, (laughs) the original question was um, about dualism and how dualism and non-dualism are representative of uh, the fractures within uh, Hindu theology. So so please continue about that.
2: I wouldn't call them fractures. I would just see it as the richness of Hindu theology. Fair fair enough. And um, I was warned when I came to the United States that be careful when you talk about dualism and non-dualism. In a, in a Christian context, maybe even to some extent in an Abrahamic context, dualism and non-dualism would be like between good and evil, things like that.
1: Oh, yeah, no, no, this is this is this, this is, is Cartesian mind-body, yes. appearance versus reality. Is it, is it Maya uh, Brahman? Brahman, yeah. yes.
2: Uh, here, dualism specifically would mean multiple realities. So. God is a different reality and we are different from God. And the insentient world, material world, is a different reality. World, God, and you are different realities. This would be the doctrine on which dualistic schools are based. There are multiple dualistic schools within uh, Hinduism. Uh, there are vari- varieties of that. And non-dualism, the tradition which I represent, our my home tradition, so to say, would say that you can't dismiss that the fact that you experience difference. But the fact that we experience difference does not mean at some deep level there is not oneness. And so the non-dualist school claims that underneath all the experiences of difference is this uh, one reality, which is called Brahman, literally which means the vast. Etymological, the word Brahman means the vast. Which encompasses all of difference. But how do you encompass difference? One way would be that the differences are real but they form a part of an organic whole and that's one school of thought which is in technical it's called Vishishtad qualified monism but that's not the school I'm talking about it's interesting to distinguish the my point of view or our tradition point of view from that point of view that point of view says that yes human beings are different from each other and we're different from the material world that surrounds us and all of that is encompassed in one divine unity um, sounds of it sounds a little like Spinoza here.
1: Uh, <laughs> You've so. anticipated my question. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so I'm so
2: underlying divine uh, unity. But the non-dual tradition says, no, no, no. The differences are apparent and the unity is the reality. So the, the you know, differences between me and you and this world, it's like the differences you see on a movie screen, for example. There are people and houses and earth and sky. But the reality is, these are all pictures on one uniform screen. Similarly, there's only one uniform screen and that, uh, what would that be? That is being itself and in non-dualism, being is identified with awareness, with consciousness. So being itself, consciousness itself and the word Ananda, it refers to bliss, fulfillment, value, so, value or fulfillment itself. Sat, chit, ananda. These are the technical terms used. Um, notice, all of you know metaphysics, epistemology, and axiology, sort of uh, ontology, epistemology, and axiology are involved here. Uh, all the questions of uh, ontology end up with sat, being. All the questions of epistemology end up with consciousness, awareness. That's what makes knowledge possible. And all that we are seeking, whatever is valuable in life, the answer to that is ananda, translated as bliss or joy or fulfillment. And that is the reality. And the world we experience, difference which we experience, is the appearance thereof. So in a few minutes, I'm
1: going to bring up the problem of the one and the many. Yeah, <laughs> But um, because I think that this oneness is something that that Westerners... And I'm always reluctant to do that, but Westerners struggle with – and I also want to point out that I think that some of the things you're saying now, the connection between epistemology, the study of knowledge, and ontology, the the study of existence, uh, that these are – that this proves part of what I was talking about in the in the monologue that there really is no radical division between the Western philosophy and the Eastern philosophy. So you mentioned Spinoza. And Spinoza, who was excommunicated for being a pantheist, his position was nature and God are, are one, and the way that I've always explained it is they're just different perspectives on the one It's like a spoon that, that is convex and concave, that one is one is God and one is one is nature. Are you suggesting something more like panentheism? And panentheism is the idea that, yes, nature and God are one, but God is – or Brahman is more than one. And the example I usually give for that is the Beatles, right? We know that the Beatles are John, Paul, George and Ringo. But when they're the Beatles, they're something more than just the four individuals. And we know that because none of their individual careers ever were successful, right? So um, are you suggesting – something along those lines that the unity is more than just the sum of its parts or is there something even deeper more more metaphysically
2: distinct from that deeper more metaphysically okay. distinct from that okay. more radical than that okay uh it's not so much as the whole is greater than the sum of its parts i mean when they come together by the way, I live near the Dakota where John Lennon yes. used to live. <laughs> and, um, you and live the, in a great neighborhood. <laughs> the, the, that's really true. There's the strawberry fields there yeah. and people are always singing Beatles songs. Yeah. But they're singing Beatles songs. And they're John Lennon songs, but nobody mm. says they're John Lennon songs. Yeah. They're Beatles songs. <laughs> but what um, non-dual, uh, non-dualism in Hinduism suggests is that uh, there is uh, an even more radical possibility. It's not so much as The uh, Lennon and uh, George Harrison and others coming together to to form the greater thing that is the Beatles, more like a movie and a screen. So the reality there is the screen and light and pictures and appearance is the story. You have Harry Potter and the school of magic and all of that. There is the earth and the sky and the good and the bad and all of that. But all of that is entirely dependent on and is an appearance of the movie screen the movie screen can exist and does exist in a sense it is the only thing that exists from uh, you know from um, from a certain perspective and it but it, it's also that which makes the movie possible similarly brahman existence consciousness bliss and these would be existence consciousness bliss with a capital e c and they are not uh, not the way existence here does not mean just existing things it's that which makes existing things possible um Consciousness is not seeing, hearing, thinking, desiring. It's that which makes all of these things possible, all of first-person experience possible. And bliss here is sort of the culmination of all our um, attempts to seek fulfillment, happiness, bliss, purpose, all of that. And Advaita Vedanta says there is one reality, which is at the same time existence, consciousness, bliss, and everything that we experience is... And appearance of that, like the rope by mistake appears as the snake. The sky, because of the way we see it, appears blue, though it's colorless. Similarly, Brahman appears as this universe. And the more stunning, the real thing, or the core idea of Advaita is the most stunning thing, the, the equation which Hinduism is most well known for, that thou art. After talking about all of this, the teacher is supposed to tell you, You are that Brahman. If you ask, what's that Brahman? Is it a speculative entity? No, no. You are it. And we can show you how you are it. Uh, And then comes the different paths, the actual practices. So if you'll indulge me for a second, I
1: want to go down a sort of nerdy Harry Potter path for a second to introduce the idea of idealism and then I'll I'll transition it into the question of the one and the many, both of which require explanations on uh, from my part and I apologize for that. So first is – and there's a spoiler here. So if you haven't read the, seven book, uh, the seventh book, fast forward for a second. Everyone thinks that the culminating scene in in the Harry Potter series is when he is killed by Voldemort. This is because they look at it from a Christological point of view that that, that Harry Potter has to die and, 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 and come back for his sins. But I actually think that the culminating scene is a comment by Dumbledore – After Harry Potter, quote unquote, dies and he's in the train station, Harry Potter is about to wake up again and he says to to Dumbledore, tell me, Professor, is this real or is this all in my head? And Dumbledore says, it's in your head, of course, but my dear boy, what makes you think that's not real? in a series that's entirely about magic and entirely about the effect of magic and, and the physical world, that has to be the central p- point, this question of idealism. What does it mean for the abstract to be real? Mm. What does it mean for the immaterial to be the ultimate reality? And that leads to the question of the one and the many. And the question of the one and the many is is how the, the individual fits in the parts. And this is how I always explain it. It's, if I'm going to tell my biography, then I have to talk about my parents first, right? I have to say, I was raised by this way. And my parents raised me this way because they were raised by that way. And they have to, in order to talk about my parents, I have to talk about my, my grandparents. They raised my parents that way. But in order to talk about my grandparents, I have to talk about that, the preceding generation and the country they came from and the tradition they came from. And the problem is I can't tell you anything about myself without telling you everything about everything. Mm. And that to truly understand Jack, you have to understand the whole universe because it's all this causation, this, this path. At the same time, in order to understand the whole universe, you have to... To start somewhere, so you might as well start with Jack. Mm-hmm. Is that applicable to the oneness of Hinduism? And is that part of what you were talking about in, in terms of
2: the self-focused and self-directed inquiry? Yes. One distinction I have to make straight away mm-hmm. is that non-dualism. The Sanskrit word is Advaita. Dvaita means dual, and Advaita is non-dual. Uh, non-dualism is not subjective idealism. Okay. I was just reading uh, 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 well, uh, look, look, to explain that term,
1: it means it 's not abstract from one person's perspective it 's not different for each individual
2: right right yeah uh, it's not that this universe this world that we are experiencing it 's all in your mind right. uh, everybody else, like the studio and Jack and everything, even this body, is in my mind it's not that it's not like a dream where uh, I have created a world. So uh, just like in my dream, I create my own dream world. It's not true that I am the one who's creating this universe, not not in the sense of one individual creating uh, a world. Um, So it's not that's called subjective idealism. Uh, In the West, it's most famously identified with Berkeley. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Uh, that we exist in God's mind and and and. The the world continues to exist when you close your eyes because it stays
2: static in God's, it's mind. God's mind. Right, right. So the world is in a mind. Yep. It could be an individual mind or, or a cosmic mind. Cosmic mind, more reasonably, so that it explains the stability of the world. Um, India had a very long tradition of subjective idealism, which is a, a flavor of Buddhism. They call it the mind only school, hmm. and. Uh, that was more than a thousand years before Berkeley and they had several hundred years of development um, and it still continues as part of the hybrid which is the emptiness school and the mind-only school which constitutes the philosophy of the Dalai Lama, for example, the Tibetan Buddhist school. Now, why I'm saying this is non-dual Hinduism, Advaita, is not mind-only, is not subjective idealism. I was recently reading a uh, an article by Professor Arindam Chakravarty, who teaches Indian philosophy at in Hawaii. Uh, the article is called Idealist Refutations of Idealism. Mm. And that says it all. Um, Advaita, non-dualism in Hinduism, is a kind of uh, idealism, but you might call it an absolute idealism. And they are very careful to uh, attack the, that article talks about the greatest of the non-dualists, Shankaracharya, who lived about 1,400 years ago, whose commentaries sort of formed the basis of non-dual uh, Hinduism today. Uh, his fierce attack on the mind-only school of Buddhism uh, and compares it with Kant's attack on Berkeley and subjective idealism. Uh, almost the same arguments. And I would say Shankara's attacks on the Buddhists are more sharp. I mean, the professor shows uh, they're more sharp and uh, more clear then Kant's attack, which is a little more diffused uh, on, on Berkeley, So, yes, non-dual uh, Hinduism is a kind of idealism. It's an idealism of an absolute kind uh, not the imagination of a mind. So Dumbledore in this version would say that, no, it's not in your head. Um, it's you are there. And it's true that we are all here and the Hogwarts school is here and The one who must not be named, you named him. (laughs) (laughs) I I had that debate in my head. Thank you for that. (laughs) uh, They're all there and they're all real. Uh, They exist apart from outside your head. But you and they and all of us, we exist in these wonderful books written by J.K. Rowling. So there's an underlying reality in which both subject and object appear. It's not that the object is an imagination of the subject. Rather, the subject and object equally appear in one underlying reality. And that underlying reality is Brahman. And you can access it through the subject. You are the subject. And in an inquiry into yourself, uh, coming to your question, an inquiry into yourself would take you to uh, that, that absolute, your absolute reality. And that would be the purpose of non dual Vedanta to realize I am Brahman. And that realization would set you free from samsara from the travails of worldly existence.
1: I want to try this again because this is deep metaphysical stuff with a lot of terminology and if folks are feeling like they're losing the thread, they're not alone. So I want to try to to do this again because I think this is super interesting and super important and I'm going to suggest something that it isn't to have you – elaborating on what it is. There's a problem when, when philosophers ask about what is real. They'll often ask, you know, is a fictional character real? So Homer Simpson or we can stick with Harry Potter, right? In some sense, Homer Simpson, Harry Potter are real because we know who they're, we're talking about. We know we know what they look like. We know their stories. We know their adventure. There's, there's an there's a, um, intersubjectivity. There's a, There's a collective objective quote-unquote sense in which they're real because we are are all talking about the same thing. But they're also fictional because they don't exist in the same way. You are not saying that though. You're not saying that the real world is fictional. We just all share in that fiction. You're saying the physical world, the world of appearance, the world that we experience every day is fundamentally real. It's just – a layer of understanding, a filter of understanding based on our knowledge at this point in time and at this life. And so the more we know, the more we've experienced, the more karma we've've we, we've, we've had uh, we've created um, the more we see the fullness um, but they're all equally real. they're just different perceptions of the real is that i mean it's it, i i should warn again the listeners that what ends up happening is that is that lots of folks in the hindu tradition end up saying that the reality is indescribable right and so we're going to we're going to come across that problem but but am i am i somewhere close
2: to where you want to go you certainly are yeah it's not a fiction in the sense that oh we all till now we were in the matrix now we've right. popped out of it what happens is is that if you investigate this our experience that ultimate reality which hinduism is talking about will become evident to you and from that perspective you see that's a deeper a more real real if you uh, if you will than this one but this is also real in its own on its own terms so science is perfectly real and uh, religion too is real and our common sense dealings in business and uh, and war and uh, all of that is real it, it's happening uh, it's not it's not seen, dismissed as a fiction or as a dream. Not in that sense. But um, as Swami Vivekananda, who is a founder of uh, the Hindu movement in the West, he put it, it's not from falsity to reality. It's better to put it as this way, from lower truth to higher truth. Mm-hmm. And in, in there is a sense in which Brahman is a higher or a deeper truth than the world that we are experiencing. Um but it's not fiction. See, there's a big disconnect between fiction and, say, Harry Potter and the book Harry Potter is written in. There's right. a big disconnect. There's a jump there. Um, and so from that jump, you can dismiss Harry Potter as a complete fiction. Uh, um, you cannot tell Harry Potter that your essential reality is J.K. Rowling. No, they don't exist in the same plane, plane of mm-hmm. reality. But you, we, um, in fact, non-dual Hinduism will tell you that Brahman is your reality. Um Yes, you can talk about the world as a fiction, but you are the reality of this fiction. So uh, this is an appearance in Brahman, and at the level of appearance, you can have science, you can have religion, you can have politics, uh, all of that would be as true as they are claimed to be true, but they are not the ultimate truth.
1: So is Islam a level of reality, Buddhism a level of reality, Judaism, uh, secularism, uh uh, quantum physics are these all levels of reality that when we when we have a sense of Brahman, it all gets sorted out um, in not necessarily in some hierarchy, but but in some in grand puzzle. Or is there is there is there falsity? Is there incorrectness? Is there is, can can you be wrong?
2: Yes, you can be wrong. Okay. And um, I wouldn't say that. You know, what I would say is that Judaism. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, at their core, what we hold is they're all pointing to the same reality. The only advantage you might have in um, Advaita, the tradition I'm talking about, is that it might appeal to um, a philosopher where uh, instead of talking in mystical terms, in terms of indescribability, uh, you can actually go pretty far, if not the whole journey, you can go pretty far following uh, reason and experience. That's the only advantage that we are talking about. But all other traditions, they are pointing to it. I mean, they maybe at, at the sharp end of the spear, it becomes mystical. Uh, but they are all pointing to this one reality. Uh, yeah. A, a book that I've mentioned on the show before that
1: I, I've found tremendously Interesting and helpful is a book called Buddha's Brain, which um, you probably know, and it's it's about uh, the the effect that meditation and yoga, but particularly meditation, has on neurology. and And part of it is is the uh, attempt to show that the tradition of meditation is meaningful, important, and that it can have effects in the 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 world of science. Hmm. Is you, you mentioned that science is true? Is there a tension in Hinduism between the scientific worldview and and the the mystical or or theological worldview? Because, of course, right, a lot of Americans are used to, especially in politics, that you know, evolution is false. Even while driving their car and using the internal combustion engine, right? right. Is there this same tension in 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 the in the Hindu discussion? Um, or is there a continuum and, a, a, and an integration that, that some people might find more, I guess,
2: inclusive or holistic? It is more inclusive. Yeah. There's a, a greater continuum there. Yeah. Uh, but again, I'm always careful when I talk about Hinduism. Yeah. It could the opposite is also <laughs> equally equally <laughs> right, true. Right, right. But let me just talk about the tradition I'm uh, comfortable yeah. about about the Advaita Vedanta. Um, there are two uh, two aspects to this. From the Advaitic perspective, uh, we are very clear what we are attempting when we talk about the cosmos in the ancient cosmology of fire, water, air, earth. That's common across right. the different uh, Indian, why well, just Indian, I think Greek, Indian, Chinese civilizations. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty common sense way of looking at the world. But it's pretty clear in, in our tradition that we are not insisting that that's the right worldview. What we are saying is you need a worldview to go from there to what we are trying to point out, that you are the absolute reality of this universe. Now, if you have a better worldview to offer, modern science has a better worldview to offer, um, Advaita would be perfectly okay with it. Because we are not trying to do science here, so we are not in competition with science. In fact, that's true of most of Hinduism. Um, One of the early Indologists, uh, he said, I find that these ancient Hindus we Darwinians a thousand years before Darwin. <laughs> so you have in Hinduism the idea of God. God was a tortoise, a very big tortoise and very powerful, impressive tortoise, but it's a tortoise. And the God was a fish. And then God was, um, no, first a fish and then a tortoise. And then God was um, a boar and God was a half man, half lion. And then God was in the human form which shows a very interesting, you know, like almost a Darwinian evolution of. Mm. So so what Hinduism talks about is an evolution of nature and the manifestation of God. So it's not that God is evolving, but God's, let's say, God's outer garment, God's fashion sense is evolving. (laughs) 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 Love that. Yes. (laughs) And so uh, this is so nature evolves and God manifests more and more through evolved nature. And uh, that's the way Hinduism would put it, so Hinduism has no direct uh, conflict with evolution. In fact, Hinduism would be happy with evolution. There are sutras in the the sutras of yoga, the aphorisms of yoga which talk about evolution, which say that multiple bodies must come over over lifetime, and that's part of the spiritual manifestation of Bra- Brahman. To illustrate one aspect of this, will you tell the story about the Swami who is suffering with throat cancer? Sri Ramakrishna, who was at the source of our particular movement within Hinduism, um, he was probably the most significant uh, spiritual figure in India in the 19th century, I think in the last few hundred years probably. Um, so when he passed, uh, he, had, he suffered from terminal throat cancer. And he was uh, uh, suffering immensely. One of his young disciples comes in once in the morning and says, How are you today, sir? And he says weakly, it hurts. He points to his throat, it hurts and I can't eat. And the disciple, I don't know what possessed him, says, but sir, I see that you're in great bliss. You're in great joy. And that's a cruel thing to say to a dying cancer patient. (laughs) But Sri Ramakrishna's response is even more startling. He bursts out laughing and he says, oh, the rascal has found me out. (laughs) He's seen through me. Which means that there is certainly a layer where Disease is not denied, pain is not denied, it's experienced just like any other patient would experience it. But what spirituality has done, what enlightenment has done, is it's opened you to this much more fundamental level of reality from which perspective you see it is all right and you can deal. The the cancer doesn't go away, the body is going to die anyway, but you see you are not the body. And you see even the pain in the body as an object, as a thing out there. an unpleasant thing, but still, it's there. It's not that you are unaware of it. You are in some deep mystical state and you can't feel it. It's like you are spiritually uh, anesthetized to pain. Not even that. He's feeling it just like anybody else feels it. And yet, he is—he uh, somehow manages to rise above it. And that's what uh, Vedantic spirituality promises. So you see, it's not dismissed entirely as a fiction. Every bit of this world is accepted as real And yet through spiritual um, enlightenment, through spiritual progress, one can lead a much better life here, much more, you're much stronger, you have a a greater sense of meaning and purpose in life, which is not shaken by the storms of life. The Gita says, having found that, after which nothing greater remains to be found, established in which even the greatest sorrows cannot shake you. It's almost biblical language, you know, uh, where you built your house on fo- firm foundations. Call it the foundations of God, or in, in Hinduism we would say it is the foundation of your real self, capital S self. And that's what spirituality promises. I'll just add one thing going back to what you talked about, science and Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Often a good deal of, um, in many texts when they talk about the cosmos in Hinduism, they seem to echo f- you know, findings in modern science leading some of my Hindu brothers to claim, oh, we all had it all thousands of years ago, which is nonsense. We didn't have quantum mechanics thousands of years ago. We didn't have string theory thousands of years ago. Brian Green, who's a very well-known cosmologist at, at Columbia, uh, he he launched his latest book, Until the End of Time. And I, I was in the book launch, and I asked him about this side of Hinduism. He knows it. Uh, he has, uh, his elder brother is a Hindu monk. So he has had these discussions with his brother. And he says, what you have in the Hindu texts it's not science, but it's poetry. But on prin- principle, they seem to be talking about the same thing. So there you see there is no, even at the most fundamental level, there's no real clash with, uh, with modern science.
1: So this may be the last question, um, and it's a big one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I also think it might be a useful encapsulation of, of what we've been talking about. What is me? You know, when I say me, is there a fundamental difference between the me, I experience and, I don't know, me, capital M? If I'm starting with this, this, this self-focused inquiry as opposed to the God-focused and I start with, you know, Jack, me, I, what is it and where does it lead me?
2: Right. I think that's the central question. And um, in the school I belong to, that would be the core spiritual practice to attend to our own experience of life. Which experience? All experience. Just attend to yourself instead of attending to things other than you. So what am I or what's this me? I mean, if you straight away ask, point to yourself. you'll Point to the body. But then we are invited to notice the body changes from babyhood to childhood to youth to middle age to old age and to death finally. And I seem to be intuitively the same person experiencing all of this. Body is a stream of matter all the time. Um, Not only that, the body is an object. Just like uh, the table in front of me, I can see it and touch it and hear it. Uh, I can do the same to the body. I can touch it and taste it and smell it and hear it. So the body is an object to all five senses. Uh, And I don't normally think of myself as an object. So I, whatever I am, it's not the body because it's continuously changing. I'm not changing in that sense. It's an object and I'm the subject. Um, and I'm aware of the body. The body, no, none of its powers, none of its parts or the whole is aware of me. Then we go deeper. So am I the mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions? That's what most people identify with. You know, They say, yeah, yeah, I don't think I'm a body. I'm an embodied person, a mind maybe. But then you see the same logic applies to the mind. The mind is a stream of thoughts, emotions, ideas, memories. Um, not only that, those are also objects. This is a very subtle point that's pointed out here that thoughts are also objects because I'm aware of them. Uh, they are, if I just think 2 plus 2 is 4, I was aware of the thought 2 plus 2 is 4. 2 plus 2, 4 is not aware of me, the Swami. Mm. and It's not aware of anything. It's not even aware of itself. So thoughts are also objects. They are also changing and I'm aware of them. I am that which is uh, having these experiences, which makes experience itself possible, and that's never an object. So this is the way the inquiry proceeds in, uh, in non-dual uh, Hinduism, and the point you are at one point expected to grasp intuitively this innermost reality, which is definitely consciousness in some sense, because you're aware, after all, It definitely exists. Um, and that is called existence consciousness in, in non-dual uh, Hinduism. So that's how the inquiry would proceed. That's powerful, beautiful, compelling, and I
1: don't mean this sarcastically in any way. It would take more than a single lifetime to meditate <laughs> on that. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for being here. You are You are the first person I've interviewed in person in many years because of the realities of our surrounding, I couldn't think of a better transition to person-to-person interviews again. So Swami, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for coming to our
2: little corner of the world. Thank you for doing this, Jack, and I really appreciate it, coming all the way in this weather to do the interview in person. It was much more interesting for me. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you
1: for having me. You have been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Swami Savrapri Ananda on why philosophical discussions about everyday life, and I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this.
0: Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org.
1: You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Swami Savapri Ananda about Hinduism and how to think like a Hindu. You know, um, the drive down to Fargo from Grand Forks was pretty intense today. Uh, The rain was very heavy and there were a lot of trucks on the road and I had a lot of moments of, of real stress, not to mention the fact that I was really concerned about being late and in the process of of, of driving, I, I had to compose myself. I had to re- remind myself that I had control of the car, that my reality was being affected by my anxiety and my nervousness and that I was a pretty good driver and as long as everyone else was a pretty good driver, we would be OK, that the car was designed to run in the rain. Why do I tell the story? Because – On the one hand, my reality is created by my perspective. On the one hand, the the meanings that I have, the confidence that I have in myself, the trust in my surroundings, that's part of my reality. But the other hand, if I had crashed, I would have died, right? If I had hydroplaned, the car would have done what it was going to do. And so I had to process both the the, the physical reality, the scientific laws – and my perceptions and my knowledge of it with the awareness that there was a whole bunch of other things going on, like, for example, there was a designer of the highway who would create angles that would make it easier to ride in the rain. I use that as an analogy to the conversation that we've been having today, that what Hinduism requires us to do is to reflect on the layers of perception and the layers of knowledge to follow a path to – this thing called enlightenment. I can't describe to you what enlightenment would be because if I were enlightened, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd probably be somewhere else. <laughs> and in the Hindu tradition, as in the great Western philosophical tradition, to claim knowledge is to make yourself suspicious. Those people who were claimed to be enlightened may not be the enlightened ones. So I think that some of us are are – for many of us, Hinduism is foreign, and for many of us the 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 story the the accounts that they tell, the texts, the theology, the metaphysics is very, very hard to grasp. But in reality, we all think like that all of the time. we just have to be able to systematize it and reflect on it on it and think about it, and do it without prejudice, do it without Self consciousness. Do it without embarrassment. Follow those thoughts. Follow your path. Get to the place where Hinduism becomes a reality for you. It doesn't have to be your religion, but it's certainly a source of great knowledge and beauty and 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 curiosity. One of the things that stuck with me uh, in the conversation with Swami was when he said in passing that that Americans had done more with yoga in recent years than in in, in millennia in. India and on in some sense I think that was hyperbolic, but in some sense, of course, it's not at all. Yoga is pervasive. I mean I mean this is not the same tradition, but there are I think four sushi restaurants in Grand Forks, North Dakota, right? Sushi is everywhere, yoga is everywhere, Hinduism, meditation is everywhere. And this idea that we can be a part of it, that it's not cultural appropriation, that it's not rudeness, that we can be genuinely, authentically part of the inquiry is liberating in and of itself. And I'm tremendously honored to have the Swami here to help us see not just what Hinduism is but to feel that we all have a place in it whether we are Hindus or not. And what more can you want from a philosophical discussion? You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check us out at whyradioshow.org and click the Donate button because we do exist on your donations. But regardless, whether you do that or not, it is always an honor to be with you.
0: Y is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Lua y e. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower.